Welcome to Pananomics, a series exploring the economic impact of the COVID-19 pandemic and what the coming months may hold for Canadians. My name is Stephen Maurice. I'm the editor of Scotiabank Perspectives. Well, it looks like the U.S. election is probably over, uh, although Donald Trump hasn't quite thrown in the towel just yet. Uh, but for the sake of this discussion, we're going to assume that Joe Biden has actually won. And so we will uh, take stock of what the Trump years meant for the Canadian economy and what the outlook might be under a, under a Biden administration, particularly in the midst of a pandem pandemic with no end in sight. Uh, joining us today to do just that is Jean-François Perrault, Scotiabank's chief economist. Welcome back to Pananomics, JF. Thanks, Stephen. And so have you been glued to CNN for the past week or so, as I have? Yeah, we've been glued to MSNBC, not CNN, but uh, one of the cable news networks. It hasn't been a hasn't been a very good sleep week. <laughs> well, hopefully, since uh, hopefully we'll be getting into somewhat more normal territory now on on a whole bunch of different levels. As with everything else in this administration, there's been drama and chaos on the economic front, but also I'd say some undeniable successes, at least from uh, from the president's perspective. He's fought some trade wars, renegotiated NAFTA, saw unemployment drop to, I think, record lows before COVID anyway. And a stock market, probably the indicator he always cared most about, that saw some pretty good years as well. And then COVID happened and threw everything up in the air. As our biggest trading partner, uh, obviously everything that happens down there has an outsized impact on us and on the Canadian economy. So let's go over some of that and I think probably start with trade, uh, as I mentioned, them being our largest trading partner. Uh, lots of tumultuous times during the Trump administration internationally, in particular uh, in its relations with uh, Canada and Mexico through through NAFTA and the renegotiation. Can you give us just a bit of the big picture view of what that meant for Canada? It's tumultuous as it was. What was what was the actual impact? Were our trade numbers significantly affected? Again, I'm talking pre-COVID, but uh, uh, what was the impact of all that? Well, certainly, certainly the the... I mean, of all the things that happened during the Trump presidency, the one where I think he's had the most impact has been on the trade policy side. And, and that impact has been, uh, I think, compounded by the fact that, you know, he's had a very uh, kind of, he's had a very uh, strange way to think about trade policy in general. So, you know, he came into power in the U.S., saying that he was going to fix the trade deficit, that he thought the trade deficit was, going to, was a problem. He thought NAFTA was a problem. He thought the Trans-Pacific Partnership was a problem. He thought basically every trade deal the Americans had signed in the past were a sign of economic weakness. So his hallmark, uh, uh, his signature policy uh, commitment in the last election, so 2016, um, was essentially, I'm, you know, you vote for me, I'm going to fix the trade situation in the U.S., so he spent a lot of time doing that, and, and he, but he did, he did it in a, very, um, uh, in a very haphazard, very kind of archaic way. So the result has been, um, it wasn't all that great, to be honest. I mean, you know, there was this lack of appreciation that trade deficits effectively represent things that are beyond kind of the policymakers' control to some extent. It's, you know, it's essentially the result of savings and investment behavior in various countries. So unless you change that, you can't change the trade deficit. Trump didn't think of it that way. He thought, you know, tariffs were the solution. He thought managing trade was a solution. So as a result of that, you know, as, as you pointed out, we have a new trade deal with the Americans, the USMCA. 
um, the Americans, uh, the U.S., uh, undertook a pretty damaging trade war with China, um, which actually, you know, pre-COVID, for the last couple of years going into COVID, I mean, that was the single largest risk to the global economy, that this trade war with China would, would spiral out of control. As a result of that, you saw, for instance, kind of lower oil prices, and what we should have seen, lower growth in the U.S., lower growth in China, lower growth in Canada, um, you know, a lot of uh, uncertainty in financial markets, ebbing and flowing depending on the day. But basically, it was an environment where, um, uh, you know, there was just not a lot of certainty on the trade side. You didn't know from one day to the next which country had fallen to, the, you know, his sites. Would it be the auto sector? Would it be the, would it be, you know, the steel and aluminum industry for which from somehow we were considered national security risk? So all those things, I think, had a, had a significantly depressing impact on global trade you know, scaled back some of the gains from globalization. Um, and of course, that effect, that affected every. I mean, affected the U.S. negatively, I would argue. It affected us negatively. And, you know, the big, the big, the big, the net result of all that actually was, and this is one of the things that we feared about a second Trump mandate, uh, was that, you know, because he wasn't tackling the heart of the problem, the savings investment imbalance in the U.S., the trade deficit actually grew during his presidency. So one of the fears we had, for instance, was you know, if he were to be reelected, would he then pursue an even more aggressive trade policy to try and, and you know, fix the trade deficit even, even, even in, the, uh, you know, real, in the realization that what he had done actually didn't, didn't really have much of an impact, in fact, had the opposite impact. So it's, um, it, you know, to be honest, it's, it's kind of, it's a bit of a relief. Uh, not that Biden was necessarily going to be dramatically different from Trump, but certainly uh, I think we'll, we'll approach trade policy issues from a more conventional way of thinking about it, which understanding that, you know, it's perfectly normal for some things to be produced where they're cheaper and, 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 and you know, so goes the world. So we, we'll get to Biden and I guess the direct impact on Canada in a second. This is maybe a bit of an aside, but part of Trump's sales pitch to Americans that got him elected, as you said, was, you know, bad trade deals and so on. Associated with that was sort of the outsourcing of manufacturing jobs and, uh, you know, even things on things like steel and aluminum and so on. And his promise was to bring those jobs back to the United States. Did he have any success there at all? Not really. Um, in fact, you know, survey after survey and, and, you know, there's a range of studies that show that his um, his tariffs essentially ended up costing American jobs. And these are just on a couple of ways. Firstly, you know, because of the uncertainty associated with the stance of U.S. trade policy, there was, you know, lower growth than otherwise would have been the case. So put that aside. Um, but basically, by putting in place tariffs on a range of things, um, those things tended to be inputs into the U.S. manufacturing or the production system, right? So you raise the cost of those things. It made U.S. firms less competitive. You saw them kind of manage their inventories differently. You saw them stockpile a whole bunch of stuff. You saw the price for steel at various points in time skyrocket. Um, all as a result of these things. So there's no compelling evidence that 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 had actually, you know, that those policies actually had a meaningful positive impact on industries that even he was trying to protect. And, you know, maybe the best example of these is if you're looking at, again, pre-COVID, the, you know, stock prices for various U.S. steel producers they basically trended down for most of his presidency. So even his efforts to try and shore up um, an area of focus for him, which was uh, the U.S. steel industry, like that, that didn't translate into 
into good financial performance, um, which, of course, is the ultimate test of whether or not your policies are successful in some sense. So looking at a Biden administration, uh, as you say, on a whole bunch of levels, at least people are looking forward to a little bit more stability, more predictability in, in all kinds of things. But at the same time, you know, arguably the Democrats or at least certain uh, certain elements within the Democratic Party are as protectionist as uh, Trump is. Uh, more so probably than the Republicans used to be. Uh, I don't know how much you know influence Bernie Sanders would have will have in a Biden administration and his wing of the party, but Democrats are probably traditionally less free traders than than the Republicans have been. So uh, on the plus side, stability, working within institutions in a more normal way. But from an actual policy perspective, what do you? How do you see the, the evolution of the trade relationship? So the best thing is simply we assume there's going to be more certainty or sorry rather less uncertainty that so again coming back to the trump policies that I mean the really damaging thing was you just didn't know what was going to happen from one month to the next right is he going to attack this country or that country this industry that industry? is going to use a real reason or a fake reason um basically a, a sense that he wasn't playing by any kind of rule book that you know you'd sign a deal with the country and the next thing you know he's threatening sanctions again or he's threatening an industry we we assume that uh, Biden is not going to do that, right? That he like his word will be his bond to some extent. That if he signs into a trade deal, not that that's going to be a priority for them, but he will respect the rules of the game, with the understanding that that works both ways, right? If you if you agree to something and you're both living up to your end of the bargain, then you know that obviously creates better relationships, but also better outcomes. So at the very least, we anticipate that. Um, but you're right. I mean, historically, the Democrats have been the protectionist ones. Um, Trump has been far more protectionist than any, any Democrat and, of course, far more protectionist than Republicans typically are. Um, now, we've seen we've seen in through the campaign that the that the Biden organization has you know, wanted to differentiate themselves from Trump. So they've been perhaps a little more Republican in their approach to trade than Trump has been. Um, but you know the the this I mean this is not an environment where we anticipate a whole lot of action on the trade side, uh, and that's that's not a bad thing. I mean you know uh, he will surely try and, and and kind of renegotiate things with China, maybe you know uh, stabilize that relationship to some extent. But there's very little going on between, for instance, China, uh, uh, the U.S. and Canada that's worthy or that will require some kind of you know presidential involvement. Probably on the Mexican side, the Europeans are probably breathing a sigh of the relief because Trump said he was going to go after the European car industry. Um, so it's probably, I mean, without there being an ambitious trade agenda on his on Biden's part, that in and of itself is probably a decent thing at this point in time. So then I guess USMCA is what it is. That will that will be our sort of guiding principle probably over the, the next few years. It's That's kind of old news for now, but after a couple of years of that being in place... Looks okay. Canada didn't give up too much. It's a solid foundation for Canada to continue working from. Yeah, I mean, you know, USMCA is basically NAFTA with a couple of little tweaks. Um, and those tweaks were concentrated in the auto industry. In fact, what we've seen in the auto industry in Canada over the last couple of months have been two pretty major announcements about, uh, you know, production restarting or shifting at some of the couple of major auto plants. So, in fact, and whether you can attribute that to USMCA or other things remains remains a little bit debatable. But you know the reality is that um, the one area of significant change in 
the most, the area with the most significant change to USMCA, um, which the auto industry so far in Canada seems to seems to be working out pretty well for us. Right. Okay. Well, let's move on to uh, sort of the field of energy and maybe green energy as well, because that that could there could be implications there for the auto industry as well, if uh, if the Democrats go back towards Paris Accords and emissions targets and all that stuff. But let's start with energy first. Uh, some would argue that Trump was better, at least in theory, for the for the Canadian energy industry, more pro-pipeline. Uh, on the other hand, with fracking and everything else and the, and the aim towards energy independence in the United States, you know, did they need us less? Would they eventually need us less? Uh, and certainly Biden and the Democrats less bullish on fossil fuel energy. Uh, how do we, how do, is, you know, is Keystone going to be scrapped again before it's barely gotten going? Uh, what's the outlook for Alberta here? Well, it's certainly going to be a little bit trickier. There's no question about that. So Biden has been pretty clear that he wants to, he wants to scrap Keystone, um, that's obviously not a good thing for Alberta, but at the same time, there's been progress on the other pipelines since then. So, the, you know, the importance of Keystone is significantly less now than it was four years ago. It's not to say it's not important, but, you know, at least we have some other outlets. Um, but, you know, the, like the, the energy prices are a function of supply and demand, right? So, so one of the things that Biden has also said he wants to do is he wants to uh, roll back all the you know drilling licenses that were provided to American firms for drilling in you know federal lands on wildlife refuges and other kinds of things. So that obviously is going to limit the extent of uh, um, U.S. energy production growth over the next however many years. Um, you know he's probably going to be a little bit tougher on fracking than than Trump was. Uh, that also will limit the extent to which uh, the U.S. energy industry can kind of keep up with demand. And in addition to that, you've got probably, you know, if you look at Biden's economic policies and if he can actually put those in place, if the Senate, the Republican Senate allows him to do that, you're probably looking at stronger growth in the U.S. as well. So you might end up in a situation where you've got, you know, stronger U.S. growth, stronger global growth, a little bit more constraint on the U.S. side in terms of being able to produce energy. And that actually could end up being reasonably good for us. You know, it could lead to high oil prices. And we've actually seen that over the last couple of weeks, pretty significant rebound in oil prices as kind of folks start to price this thing out. So it's not it's not a slam dunk that it's that it's a negative for us. I mean, you know, he is creating, hopefully creating the conditions for more sustainable and stronger global growth. And that usually has a pretty good, pretty good impact on on oil prices, even if there is a climate agenda and a green agenda behind all of that. Just in that that broad question of growth and what global growth and American growth might look like over the next few years. I mean, growth numbers weren't fantastic, but they were pretty positive during the Trump presidency. They had some of the lowest unemployment, consistently low unemployment. Quite a bit of the credit for that probably goes to things that happened earlier. The, the, that big recovery started under the under the Obama administration, but I mean the economy was running well. Whatever else we might all think of Trump, uh, you know, unemployment very low, reasonable growth, stock markets which we can talk about a little bit. What what's the likelihood? I mean, obviously that this is where COVID comes in into the conversation because that's the giant question mark, but. Why would it be more likely that there'd be growth under a Biden administration than under a Trump administration? 
in the immediate future, it's, it's simply a, a matter of fiscal policy, right? As we deal with COVID, I mean, this is an extremely damaging shock to the global economy, the U.S. in particular, um, or U.S. as well. And one of the things that's allowing countries to get out of this more rapidly than others or on a more sustainable footing than others is the extent to which fiscal policy is helping firms and households manage the consequences of COVID. Um, and, and here, the U.S. did a pretty good job of this early on in, in, in the pandemic, um, but they've, you know, political disputes since then have um, basically halted a lot of the benefits that were flowing to households, keeping them, keeping them afloat. And you've seen, for instance, you've seen uh, you know, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, Jay Powell, uh, talk a number of times about the importance of fiscal stimulus in terms of sustaining the recovery. Um, Biden has been very clear through the campaign that he was going to do a lot more. He had like an ambitious infrastructure plan. He wanted to give a lot more money to households and firms. He had a green plan, uh, whereas Trump basically had no policy proposals. Um, so, you know, when you start, when you price those things out, uh, when you realize that the economy still needs some policy support from the fiscal policy authorities, I mean, Trump was, uh, Biden was the only game in town, really. Um, now, that doesn't mean that he's going to be able to do that. It would be much easier for him to do that with a, with a Democratic Senate. It doesn't appear to be that that's going to be the case, but that that could change in, in the runoffs. Um, but he's likely to do something. Um, you know, the reality is, as I mean, we'll see when this is published, but, you know, the U.S. COVID cases are just like they're skyrocketing. Like, you know, they're, they're, they're increasing dramatically and they're probably going to increase a lot more as we go forward. And, and, and that speaks to, you know, the need for these kinds of support measures. And our sense was that that was more likely under, under Biden than under, under Trump. And certainly I think markets had that in mind as well, which is why markets have been running up ahead of the election and have continued since then, um, the, you know, the so-called result. Um, and, and, and that's basically, I think, because there was this understanding that of the two candidates, one had a better plan for getting us out of this or getting the Americans out of this than, than the other. Yeah. Well, I guess we'll have to see uh, whether Senator McConnell will have a more open mind to, uh, to a new president. He wasn't willing to play ball with the Democratic House on exactly that kind of stimulus. Will he have had a change of heart with a different president? I guess we'll wait and see. But it'll be difficult for him not to, right? I mean, if, if in fact COVID you know, goes up to 150, 200,000 cases a day in the U.S., or maybe more in the next few weeks, um, you know, the cost of inaction just becomes that much higher and it becomes more indefensible, harder to defend a kind of an obstructionist stance on, on providing relief. But you never know. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a strange political conversation down there. It is indeed. Uh, just briefly, uh, as I said, the stock market was the main index of Trump's happiness or unhappiness with, uh, with the U.S. economy, for the most part doing pretty well until obviously the beginning of COVID and a giant dip. It's largely recovered since then. Another big boost with uh, news about the, what looks like the relative success of a, of a COVID vaccine from, from Pfizer. How has, do Canadian markets just tend to more or less follow follow the same path as as U.S. markets? I mean, Canada, I guess, has seen similar growth and then decline and then growth again. Well, generally speaking, right? I mean, I mean, markets are driven by by a few things. Obviously, expected profitability, so the state of the economy, 
but also policy support. And when central banks are throwing as much liquidity as they have into the system, I mean, that goes into asset prices. And certainly equity markets are one of the markets that have benefited from that. Um, you know, I mean, going forward, I think, you know, it's largely a prospect of what happens to, to, to you know, forecasts of economic growth. And as I said, I think I think I think their likelihood is that folks revise their forecast out for the U.S. a little bit as a result of the election, and in so doing, we'll do the same for Canada. Should be doing the same for Canada, and and that generally speaks well of the stock market. So this is it's understandable why stock markets would have gone up going into the election and a little bit afterwards, uh, here and elsewhere. I mean, you're not just seeing it in Canada; you see in the U.S., you see in Europe, you see in Asia, uh, and that reflects this kind of more pre-Pfizer announcement and reflected a little bit more optimism about the state of the world. And of course, uh, since the announcement of, the, of, a, of a successful, seemingly successful trial run of a vaccine, um, just takes away a lot of uncertainty as well about the path forward, right? That there is, at the end of the day, light at the end of the tunnel, that we will have some kind of a medical approach to managing this apart from you know, forcing people to stay away from each other. And that's obviously very, very positive. Even if it only happens, you know, in the middle of next year, even late next year, at least you've got that, you've got that, you've got that light out there. Yeah. Removing uncertainty seems to be uh, sort of the, the the phrase to live by in this entire situation. And uh, I guess everybody hoping that a new administration will bring a little bit less chaos and a little bit more predictability to everything. Look, thanks, uh, JF. I really appreciate you coming back and doing this with us. Uh, we always appreciate your insights into this. Pleasure. Thanks, Steve. I've been speaking with Jean-François Perrault, Chief Economist at Scotiabank. Thanks for listening to Pandanomics. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe on Apple or Google Podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.